the Trump administration itself um, is asserting that this is a national security question, and and they're responding to the fact to the Brussels bombing, to Paris attacks. They're responding to things of late in the European context, and and unfortunately not responding to anything in the in the Middle Eastern context, where the large majority of victims of attacks by non-state actors using force to achieve their political goals have been in the Middle East. That's Nora Arakat, a human rights attorney and co-founding editor of Jadalia, an online magazine produced by the Arab Studies Institute. In this episode, we hear from Nora about her work in international law and refugee law, as well as on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We get her take on President Trump's demand for extreme vetting of refugees, as well as what is generally called his Muslim ban. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. At the end of last month, January 2017, President Trump made an executive order to close the nation's borders to refugees from seven Muslim-majority countries. There's been a good deal of popular opposition to the order, and that's in addition to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling to halt the ban. Still, Trump's executive order has raised a lot of questions about his policies with respect to the Middle East. Our guest this week, Nora Arakat, discusses some of those policies. More broadly, Nora offers her take on recent U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, especially as it relates to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. A professor at George Mason University, Nora is co-founding editor of Jadalia, an online magazine that publishes critical analysis and discussion of issues having to do with the Arab world. We hear about her work for that publication. We also hear a bit about Nora herself, where she grew up, how she became politically active, and what it's like being a human rights attorney in the U.S. That and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. So, Nora Arakat, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Thanks for having me, Joe. So, you work in human rights, international law, and refugee law. So, I want to ask you first about Donald Trump's so-called Muslim ban. So, at the end of, of last month, January 2017, uh, President Trump closed the nation's borders to refugees from seven Muslim-majority countries. That executive order has been met with a great deal of, of backlash, it should be noted, both in the form of public comment as well as in a good deal of, of protest. And just yesterday, the uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals panel unanimously upheld the restraining order blocking the federal government from enforcing the president's ban. Still, it does seem really important to talk about the significance of Trump's advancing the ban, even if it's important, even if, excuse me, its enforcement is under question. So could you place uh, Trump's executive order in some international and political context for us? What political reasons do you think uh, he had for making the order? And what will the effects be on not just Muslims from those countries, but also um, Muslims in the U.S.? Absolutely. So let me start by saying that the Ninth Circuit decision uh, that is wonderful and we should applaud is by no means the end of this, that we shouldn't rest at all. To the contrary, what we see clearly in the legal decision is that but for a few things that the administration and its drafting of this draft, it could very well be legal. The reasons that they found that it wasn't legal is because they, they have very little evidence. The government lawyers were not even prepared to respond to why these were 
uh, these specific countries posed any security threat when asked whether or not any terrorist suspects had come from any of the seven countries, the government's attorney literally replied, I don't know. And uh, the, ju- the Ninth Circuit um, judge asked uh, or responded and said, the answer is zero. So the lack of evidence, the lack of preparedness is one reason, although the Ninth Circuit panel also acknowledged that you know these countries don't together constitute a Muslim ban because they only represent 15% of the global Muslim population anyway. So it's not really a Muslim ban and are ready to entertain uh, government arguments uh, along that line. Second, this was so hastily put together by the administration itself outside of even internal uh, procedural protocol. This wasn't vetted by anybody um, in the Department of Homeland Security. DHS had its own draft of what they would have uh, written that was never reviewed uh, by the uh, by the president's office. It's a hodgepodge of, of many different uh, pieces of, 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 uh, from interest groups that are coming together. So the hasty nature with, with, within which uh, how it was put together is another reason uh, that it was uh, rebuffed. And then the third reason that it was rebuffed, just I think also to assert the justiciability of these issues and what the justices themselves have said that nothing that the president does is necessarily beyond review. Though it is true that he has broader authority for national security and the president does, the executive branch does have the power to block the entry of, of uh, non-nationals beyond its borders. So we're not, this is just because this part of, of the battle is over, it's re- the president can easily redraft mm. an executive order that's much more narrowly tailored that meets those criteria without even rescinding this one and put it into effect. So, uh, and so, well, I was just going to ask. So, what it sounds like you're suggesting is that I mean, in part, um, the the uh, the ban was rejected simply because um, the Trump administration didn't really have their like ideas in order. And if in fact they had, they, they didn't had, do their homework. I see. As a matter of law, they didn't do their homework, and so. And I'm also saying, in addition to to start off by saying that, I'm also saying that looking to the court to protect uh, people in the United States right now is an insufficient strategy. Mm. It's definitely one one piece of this battle, but if it weren't for massive protests at the airport, this this wouldn't have gone, the courts wouldn't have been as emboldened and prepared to respond as they did. And so also for us to think about that this is not going to be a matter, a, a, a battle between the judiciary and the executive branch. This needs to be a mass-based protest amongst the people themselves. So in terms of where does this fit um, internationally and politically, the Trump administration itself um, is asserting that this is a national security question. And, and they're responding to the, fa- to the Brussels bombing to Paris attacks, they're responding to things of late in the European context and, and unfortunately not responding to anything in the, in the Middle Eastern context where the large majority of victims of attacks by non-state actors using force to achieve their political goals have been in the Middle East. And they don't acknowledge that 
folks in the Middle East, the populations of the Middle East have been the primary targets of these, ter- what you know, terrorist attacks. And I, and I describe terrorism in my first iteration rather than say terrorism because of the way that it's used and it's loaded. Um, and I think it's been very irresponsible um, because it, it, uh, the way that we use terrorism is only to describe when non-state actors do it and we absolve states when they engage in terrorism. So I just want to put out there that any attack on civilians, regardless of the perpetrator, um, to direct attack on civilians is terrorism. And so they're responding to that, except that even that, that none of the states that they've mentioned have produced the threats that they're concerned about. If you're thinking about 911, they should have targeted Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, the UAE. They don't do that, and that's because of our own interests. The reason that they choose these seven is because the Obama administration had highlighted that these seven states were of particular concern. And so they are actually um, recycling and using things that the Obama administration laid out before. Um, Not only that, but even the idea of a Muslim registry is something that the Obama administration also upheld, and it was created during the George W. Bush administration in the form of NCIRS, where in the aftermath of September 11th, the Bush administration asked every uh, non-U.S. citizen aged between 25 and 60 in the United States to report to an INS office to register, to basically check their status. And in the course of that registration, thousands of these young men and old men were detained. Several were deported. And it didn't increase our national security. That infrastructure of actually surveilling, racializing um, Muslims remained in place since 2001 into the end of the Obama administration's tenure when at the last hour, they dismantled and seared. And so what we're seeing in this uh, context is the, the Trump administration is not creating anything new. The only thing new that they're advancing, which is shocking the conscience of a lot mm. of people, is the unabashed and unapologetic white nationalist framework with, under which they are um, actually pursuing these policies. So, in fact, the other thing that the Ninth Circuit uh, really was concerned about, had the Trump administration not said that they were going to target Muslims, this would have been okay. Had they employed some sort of veneer of another compelling government interest besides the besides actually targeting Muslims during on the campaign trail, and more significantly, when Rudy Giuliani says that, Uh, Trump asked him to head a committee to figure out how to register and exclude Muslims legally. And he says this on national television. Had there not been this incriminating trail, this is totally what what they've done would otherwise be palatable under the law. And so, but it's the fact that the Trump administration has been so unapologetic that this, that there is reason to suspect Muslims by the very nature of their identity, that there is reason to to eliminate the need to to evaluate uh, each person as a matter of due process for their either guilt or innocence, 
is what makes this um, incredibly horrific for a lot of Americans, even the non, you know, politicized Americans who do fear Muslims, for example, but still feel like this has gone way too far and would be a, the first step in, in reversing and rolling back a lot of basic protections afforded to Americans and, and non-citizens alike in, in, in this context. So I have a, I have a couple uh, questions about what you just said. Uh, the first uh, is in relation to uh, a point you made sort of earlier on uh, about our sort of loaded use of the term terror. So it does seem like the Trump administration has made it a clear point to use the phrase radical Islamic terror to describe basically all potential or most rather potential terrorist threats to the U.S. What are your thoughts on that phrase? So do you think that the linking of terrorism with Islam as a religion has had or will have effects on the status of Muslims in this country and across the globe? Well, this isn't new at all either. The idea of linking terrorism to a type of an, an identity group, and you know, now we're seeing it being linked to Islam. In a, in a previous area, we saw it linked to communists. In a previous area, we're just seeing it linked to national liberation movements um, and and peoples of the third world. That this uh, this type of linking terrorism to a particular identity group is is not a mistake. It's very deliberate, and it's a way that. Um, is, is priming us as an audience to to discern what is legitimate and illegitimate in terms of the deployment of violence. And so we tend to, you know, turn a blind eye if we hear, for example, the United States uh, use of force killing up to 30 people in a drone strike in Yemen at a wedding or uh, on the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. And we consider that, you know, we kind of just shrug, oh, well, that's collateral damage. It's unfortunate, but too bad. Or when when Israel, right, um, engages in yet another attack on a besieged Gaza Strip, 2,200 people killed in 51 days, over 300 of them are children, again, we're primed as an audience to shrug that off as, well, that was legitimate use of force. It's unfortunate what had to come with it. Now, when we only describe terrorism in a particular way to be associated with a particular deployment of violence, we then um, think of that as illegitimate regardless of who the target is, whether they're targeting, um, these actors are targeting soldiers or whether these actors are um, targeting civilians or whether they're targeting um, military installations where civilians are killed. So all of this to say that this construction of this use of terrorism in the way that we use it today uh, is a very deliberate construction that makes us uh, less, uh, less critical of the use of violence uh, by certain actors and more critical by other actors just as a way to consider their use of violence. Now that said, what does it have to do when it comes to uh, now it's being described as uh, what, what this administration is, is, is just associating with radical Islam? I think that the groups that they're referring to, uh, primarily the groups that have claimed responsibility uh, for, for several of the attacks in, in Europe, as well as in the Middle East, and that's primarily ISIS, if they wanted to call it anything, they should have associated it with ISIS in particular, whose um, victims and whose targets have been primarily Muslims. 
And I think that that, uh, that, 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 that failure to identify that the, that the targets of ISIS violence in the Middle East have also been with them and that they're the one, that's, that's the population that's been primarily threatened by this use of force. They're primarily threatened by ongoing proxy regional and international warfare in Syria. They're primarily threatened by the gutting of Iraqi security forces in the aftermath of the U.S.'s 2003 invasion, that there, this, is, this is what we should be con, um, concerned with. And, and that approach, if we were actually thinking about, well, what, what threat do they pose to the world, not just what threat do they pose to the global north or to the, the west, uh, we would have, um, I think, a much more responsible approach because we would begin to respond to that type of insecurity and threat in terms of policies that are aimed at rehabilitating, frankly, uh, the Middle East in ways that we destroyed it. Instead, the policy response, well, let's exclude all Muslims and then let's bomb them some more where they are and subject them to even greater insecurity. Mm. And so how we frame it reflects how we're going to respond to the problem. So I want to ask then a, a, a bit about your work on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, so in a recent article in Jadalia, which is a, a journal that um, we'll discuss soon, uh, you, write, um, uh, you write that, uh, quote, no other foreign policy issue is characterized by the intransigent, excuse me, the intransigent and bipartisan consistency that shapes the question of Palestine and the United States' relationship to Israel. So I guess I have a couple questions about that. First, um, what are the reasons, just some of the reasons in your view, of the seeming unanimity among Democrats and Republicans on this issue? And then second, you know, because there's such a kind of bipartisan consensus about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I'm wondering what things about that conflict you think most Americans don't know but should. So those are great questions. Uh, the unanimity in and of itself is a reflection of several uh, several different moving parts. I think in the article that you're referring to, I also trace that the, I, I trace the kind of bipartisan consistency as emerging in a particular historical moment in the aftermath of the 1967 war, when the Lyndon B. Johnson administration inaugurates a two-pronged U.S. policy towards the Middle East. Uh, the first is that they abandon this idea of actually no peace, no war, whereby the U.S. was making sure that there was a balance of power between Israel and other Middle East um, states and primarily U.S. allies in the Middle East, um, uh, uh, authoritarian monarchies that the U.S. has also um, upheld and supported. And that they abandon this policy of no peace, no war, and shift so that they, the U.S. decides in this moment it benefits uh, the U.S. to ensure Israel's qualitative military edge over all of its neighbors so um, that it has, it, it, at any given point, it has the military power to be able to respond to one uh, to one attack or a joint attack in the Middle East. And the U.S. is concerned with this because they see Israel now, after its demonstration of force after 1967, as uh, a powerful ally 
and a foothold in the Middle East to ensure its interest in a Cold War context. The second, uh, the second policy that it inaugurates in 1967 is a commitment to a negotiated peace in order to resolve the conflict. And this reflects a very personal approach by Lyndon uh, B. Johnson, who felt that the U.S.'s, uh, US's intervention in 1956 under Eisenhower, when Eisenhower compelled France, Britain, and Israel to withdraw uh, from the Sinai, excuse me, from the uh, Suez Canal after their, their capture of the Suez Canal and Israel's four-month occupation of the Gaza Strip in 1956, Johnson reacted in that moment when he was a senator that it was a mistake to force Israel to withdraw from the Gaza Strip without some sort of quid pro quo from the Arab states, who up until that point, most states had not recognized Israel and had still contested its establishment by force and its refusal to allow uh, Palestinian refugees to return per the terms of, uh, per the terms of its, its acceptance into the UN as a member in 1949, as well as per the terms of UN resolution, uh, General Assembly Resolution 194, which mandates uh, their return. And so in 1967, in the drafting specifically of the Security Council 242, which continues to govern this issue, the Johnson administration basically says, okay, from now moving forward, nothing will be controlling of this conflict. No international law, no coalition of the willing or otherwise. This will be a negotiated peace. It will be a land for peace framework. Israel will withdraw from all territories once Arabs um, normalize their relationships with the Israeli state, um, and, and, and then they'll get their territory back. And so together, uh, this two-pronged policy of committing it, the U.S. committing itself to this negotiated peace, land for peace framework, together with ensuring Israel's qualitative military edge in the context of the U.S.'s Cold War interest in the Middle East, creates a machinery that basically hamstrings the U.S.'s own ability to challenge Israel. Mm. Later, when the U.S. does want to challenge Israel, as it does under several administrations from Gerald Ford to, to Carter uh, and otherwise, um, now we see the emergence of, and, uh, and, and frankly, the, the strength of the Israel lobby in the United States that makes it, you know, uh, that creates a great disincentive for U.S. Legislate, uh, legislators to support this, that there's a high cost, high domestic political cost of supporting um, of supporting sanction or reprimand for Israel with very little to gain um, in that political context and very little to gain even in the international context in the short term, because the gains that we're going to see from that piece are going to be long-term gains that won't necessarily re be recouped by the administration that can only last or be in power for a period of eight years. And so this is the machinery that, that continues to define uh, bipartisan intransigence, although it should be said that recent polls, a January, uh, a January 2017 Pew poll, shows that amongst progressive Democrats in particular, amongst progressive Democrats, that there is a shift 
and that their sympathy uh, for uh, for Israel has declined mm. by ten at least ten percentage points over a matter of nine months, um, and begins to show us that there is actually a crack in this type of stalwart support, whereby and whereas uh, uh, support for Israel amongst Republicans has skyrocketed, and what we're seeing in this U.S. context that the alliance between Trump and specifically Netanyahu, where Netanyahu has has celebrated the ascendance of Trump, has celebrated his proposal to build a wall and said, you can learn from us because we built a wall, right? Mm-hmm. That this kind of celebration of being a strong authoritarian leader, and I use that in, in not in the technical sense, just in a, in, a, in a colloquial sense, but in a strong, unrelenting leader, um, that that's also indicating the, uh, indicating to a, a U.S. progressive base that's completely put off by Trump's policies that's forcing them to reconsider what, in fact, Israel stands for. Yeah, so I, I have a quick question about that. So now that, as you point out, the Democratic Party has kind of been shaken up, especially with Clintonism sort of being on the ropes, uh, do, do you think or do you anticipate that uh, Democrats will, in fact, uh, kind of as a party, move to the left on this issue to a kind of, um, well, to a kind of. Uh, say- no, 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 not at all, not okay. at all. During the Democratic, during the Democratic National Convention, um, uh, there was there was a moment in this particular election where um, Bernie Sanders, as a very popular candidate, um, had put together a, a policy platform that he introduced to the Democratic National Convention. His Middle East team that included Dr. Cornell West and, and Jim Zilby of the Arab American Institute, actually put forth a very basic um, uh, demand on behalf of, uh, in regards to Palestine and Israel, that just demanded that the occupation end and that Israel retreat to uh, its 1967 borders and, and live peacefully therein, not, criti- not criticizing its you know, refusal to allow refugees to return, not at all criticizing its treatment of Palestinian citizens of Israel who are treated as a fifth block and constitute 25% of Israel's uh, population outside of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. These are citizens. And even that platform was shot down by the rest of uh, the Democratic Party, who thought, no, occupation doesn't exist. And so that this Israeli mythology, that there are no Palestinians, that they're not a people, that there was no sovereign to occupy in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip in 1967, these mythologies that have allowed Israel to evade accountability for its occupation have persisted to this day, even even in, uh, in the Demo- with, amongst the Democrats. And in fact, the final policy platform put forward by, um, you know, under Clinton's leadership and uh, her campaign was worse than what we've seen before. The Democratic uh, National Convention affirmed the indivisibility of Jerusalem and as the Israeli capital. They did not condemn occupation. And they went further and said that they would make um, the the battle against boycott, divestment, and sanctions as a threat, a uh, part of its uh, its national priorities. And so, no, we're not going to see a shift amongst Democrats. I was simply indicating that amongst a subset of Democrats, those mm. who identify as progressive Democrats, that's where we're seeing the shift. 
but it's also a generational shift. And it's also, and I think if you pulled uh, Bernie Sanders supporters, you would see an even broader disparity. So amongst a particular political base, a political base that identifies as progressive, we are seeing the shift and we, we shouldn't take this for granted. It means that we are steadily in the United States um, bringing Palestine into the fold of a very progressive agenda, which is a remarkable accomplishment given that um, only 10 years ago, it's still discussed squarely as a national security issue as an, and an issue of, you know, uh, a terrorist threat and a, and a, and a site, uh, a battlefield uh, for counterterrorism operations. So that now we're bringing it into a progressive agenda more squarely. Um, that's what, what these indicate, not what it's going to mean for party politics, but what it means for a popular uh, movement in the United States. So, Nora, um, I'm hoping to ask a bit about your publication, uh, Jada Leah. Uh, so you're co- you're a co-founder of that publication, I believe. Uh, could you talk a bit about it? I notice just on your website you have a very interesting line. Um, you say that Jadalia is run by an editorial team and a pool of contributors who are quote committed to discussing the Arab world on its own terms. I'm wondering, could you could you describe what you mean by that? Jadalia, I'm one of uh, uh, six co-founders of Jadalia. We decide to, we started working on this in 2009. We launched in July 2010, which is only, as, as you may recall, a few months before um, a, a young Tunisian uh, vegetable you know, vendor sets himself on fire and uh, self-emulates, which becomes the spark for what we term at that moment the Arab Spring and leads to the removal of uh, Tunisia's uh, leader, Ben Ali, leads to the removal of Egypt's uh, Hassan Barak, which leads to the transitional removal of Ali Abdullah Saleh in Yemen um, and, and leads to um, sites of upheaval elsewhere, what we're still bearing witness to in Bahrain, what we're still bearing witness to in Syria in the form of um, ongoing civil war, and also leads to the removal of Muammar Qaddafi, though by external inter, uh, intervention and military force. And we're still seeing the aftermath of that um, and, and, and what has not been resolved but devolved into counter-revolution. So, but we start Jadalia a few months before that. I mean, we become, I think, centrally relevant in ways we didn't expect or plan, obviously, Um, but we just at that moment knew that the way that the Middle East was covered was never covering um, what the the people of the Middle East themselves were concerned about, so that it was constantly concerned with an external Western gaze, either as a place of, you know, as policy concern or of journalistic narration but never centered either the people themselves and how they considered and how they would frame uh, their own experiences, nor did it consider any kind of historical legacy so that any kind of knowledge production on the Middle East uh, was, you know, in, in that kind of forum and in online magazine, blogs and so forth, was terse. Um, lacking context in the moment. And this was meant to 
basically not respond to the market demand, but create a niche that hadn't been filled, which was how do we combine academic analytical rigor, because the scholarship is solid, with the concern with what, you know, the, the base itself, people themselves would say in the Arab world and produce uh, content that the, that the people of the Middle East would in them themselves want to read. How do we do that? And so it was an attempt, and, you know, most of the co-founders are um, academic, you know, they're scholars in nature. And so here the kind of revolutionary approach was, how do we use all of this knowledge that's being produced to, for, for broader uh, consumption and distribution? And so those are the ideas. Now Jadalia is six years old. It, um, it has an average readership of approximately 2 million people a week. Um, the largest consumption of that, of that material is in the Arab world, in Egypt, the United States, then Lebanon, and so on and so forth, uh, Europe and several, across several um, states. And we publish, uh, we have 17 thematic pages. We publish in obviously English, but also Arabic and Farsi and have published in French and uh, have become a resource, not just on what's happening, but also in terms of even providing pedagogical tools, places to be interviewed. We highlight new scholarship that's being published. We're trying to transform this wealth of information and knowledge production that's being produced in the academy um, to actually be more responsive and more broadly accessible. And so that's been um, Jadalia's value added. And I think, um, I, I would like to say, I think we've done a pretty good job. And of course, Jadalia itself is, is not immune from uh, a lot of critique, especially on very um, on very controversial issues where we uh, don't necessarily take one political line but tend to publish even the controversial um, even controversial pieces if we feel that it would be worthwhile to have that conversation. If we feel that it would generate a productive uh, discussion between um, two or, or, or more people, that all of that becomes generative uh, in our opinion. So I have a few questions about you and your development as a, as a thinker and advocate. Uh, first, uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Fremont, California, which is uh, northern, in, in, in northern uh, California. I am a first-generation um, Palestinian uh, in, in the United States. My parents are both immigrants. I um, grew up with um, three brothers that is definitely begins to define my sense of, of justice and not justice, <laughs> because in that context, um, you know, we're, my fam we're a family of new immigrants, I'd like to say, and, and um, my family is mostly concerned, how do they, how do they survive in the United States? How do they also not lose who they are and their roots as Palestinians, as Arabs? as Muslims. And so here I am in this context navigating that. And, and it actually was the seed for my politicization because I develop, uh, without even having a language for it, I develop a feminist critique of, mm. of, of basically the, the gender roles that are assigned to my brothers and me 
that I begin to protest at a very, very young age. And that becomes the seed um, that, that becomes the seed that grows that then opens my eyes to, you know, everything that we may be, we may consider natural order, um, that I no longer take anything for granted as being natural, but that everything is subject to environmental conditions, that we have constructed gender roles, we have constructed racial roles, we have constructed even class stratification. Well, I say even because at that young age it wasn't as obvious, but not. But at this age, obviously, it's very obvious that we construct class stratification and reify it. Um, and it's that lens that, one, primes me to see injustice in a way that also sees it's, none of it is natural, which means that humans did it, humans can take it apart. And so that is the, the seed and the germ that has motivated me since I was a young girl. So when that's that's very interesting. So when and how did you decide really to become involved, not just in those questions and questions of um, of uh, the construction of of understandings of class and gender? How did you become involved in international law and human rights in particular? So that comes a little later. My first aspirations had were, were um, totally and completely domestic. But at uh, I think at a later age, probably in my late teens, I become really concerned with um, in, international affairs because I'm traveling with my family, and so I'm traveling um, to the Arab world and and exposed to a different context that primes me to think about the human rights abuses that are taking place um, not just in Palestine, where I'm, I'm very well aware of it, but across the Middle East and across the world. And my concern is a very internationalist one. It wasn't until, it wasn't until my second, or was it my second semester, possibly my third semester as an undergraduate student at UC Berkeley when I was studying abroad at Hebrew University, where, you know, built on confiscated Palestinian lands, but I was the only non-Jewish student in that context. And so, and I did that very deliberately. I wanted to learn Hebrew. I had been studying Hebrew. I wanted to be in the region. I wanted to, you know, actually have uh, some time on the ground. In that context, the second Palestinian uprising, or the second Intifada, also known as the Al-Aqsa Intifada, begins. And uh, one of the first people killed on uh, the day after that Sharon's provocation onto Haram al-Sharif is my neighbor in Abu Dhabi. And I think that it was that experience, this feeling of helplessness, but also a feeling of tremendous guilt that as an American citizen, even though I'm Palestinian, because I wasn't born into a refugee, which was a complete fluke of fortune, um, that I could leave, hmm. uh, and it becomes both the trauma of the, that experience, my, my already existing concern and political awareness, but and I identify that like the trauma of that experience together with just the tremendous guilt that I didn't do anything to earn this privilege that I have. That really, and and also the dearth, the dearth of of activism, attention, and engagement on Palestine. Uh, that I thought, you know, there's a lot of issues, but I could be most effective if I focus on this one. And from here, you know, my my global principles and universalist principles guide me in this context. 
Um, but that my specific focus here is also beneficial to understanding and uh, responding to other concerns elsewhere. But that was the, the formative shift where I then begin to dedicate, uh, I think, all my energy and all my time onto the question of Palestine and Israel. Well, so I have, I have so many questions about that, but I know I, I only have you for a couple more minutes, Nora. So I guess my, my last question uh, is this. What, what has it been like to be a human rights attorney in the U.S. So I'd say recently, especially, you know, we've seen a kind of nationalist rhetoric uh, sort of take charge of of debate about questions of international law. Um, so does, does, does that kind of rhetoric and the prominence of it make it hard to be a human rights attorney here? You know, so I always say this to students because I get, you know, in, in the classroom, students, you know, are really enthusiastic. I want to be a human rights attorney, too. And, you know, I have to burst their bubble and to say, well, one, the U.S. thinks that it's not, you know, under Trump and before Trump, the U.S. just doesn't think that it's subject to international law in the way that everybody else should be subject to it. It considers itself distinct um, and as a value added and could play the role of policemen for the world. So one, you have the challenge of the U.S. not wanting to apply human rights onto itself. And so our courts are not necessarily open and available for these purposes. Two, the very limited avenues that we've had in U.S. courts to litigate these issues have been steadily gutted. And they've been gutted um, uh, specifically the, the ability to sue for atrocities abroad under the alien sort. Uh, tort statute has been gutted uh, within the Supreme Court itself. Happy to talk about that case, but just to move on. So just to say that there isn't really room to, to be a human rights lawyer in the traditional sense of litigating particular cases or suing, you know, war criminals or going after human rights violators in that sense. In the United States context, human rights uh, lawyering is basically advocacy. It's the work to shift popular culture and understanding on these issues, which in, in all cases, right, human rights are best achieved through these popular shifts because litigating a case in which, whichever context does not spell out, you know, where a legal achievement is not um, the end-all, be-all. Take the Civil Rights Act in the United States in 1964 or the Voting Rights Act in 1965, we see that as the pinnacle of, of ending the jury segregation in the United States, and yet there has been a complete regression and a, uh, and, and a backlash against these gains incrementally in a matter of law because we never address popularly, as a matter of popular culture, the embedded racism that constitutes American thinking. And instead, after that moment, decided, well, fine, if we're not going to engage in... Um, explicit racial um, discrimination, then we move to a colorblind model. And under a colorblind model, we keep all of the racial institutional structures intact that harm populations. And if we can't find a cause of action in the language of law, we leave all of these types of uh, macroaggressions intact without being able to get to them legally. So that's also to say that um, Palestine specifically, regardless of all these other issues that I'm raising, one, that the U.S. doesn't hold itself to account, two, that you can't really litigate these issues in the U.S. or anymore, 
Three is that, you know, pop shifting culture is actually the most effective form of advocacy. Um, Palestine, in all of that, especially in the United States, is, is considered an exception. When I graduated law school, it was an exception. So that places that I wanted to work with, institutions that I wanted to work with, that worked on, that were specifically dedicated to human rights, do not touch Palestine. In the way that um, I, in, in, in the way that I would have approached it, so had constantly approached it in a very liberal way, um, where this was just a concern between both, you know, a parity between Palestinians and Israelis, without taking power into account that Israel is the only nuclear power capable power in the Middle East, is the has the eleventh. Um, strongest army in the world is the primary beneficiary of the United States that enjoys unequivocal military economic and um, uh, uh, military economic and diplomatic U.S. support. And so, you know, as I approach these different human rights institutions, I don't need to name them. None of them really wanted to bring me on to work on Palestine because it would have rocked the boat too much. And so doing that human rights advocacy in this context, in the fact that, that Palestine had, had always been exceptionalized, has been doing the work of being involved in movements, of being able to work on multiple, on multiple fronts at the same time, which, you know, my first job out of law school was both to create lawsuits against former Israeli military officials uh, that were dismissed on just disability grounds, um, in federal district court, but also to plant seeds for boycott, divestment, and sanctions um, across the United States. That we're talking about this is in the context 2005 to 2007, right? When BDS isn't as popular or as accepted as it is now, but planting it in, in faith-based institutions, planting it on college campuses, planting it amongst you know local municipalities and city councils, and so um, that has continue to be my work. I continue to do that advocacy now in ways that are seen and unseen, um, but that knowledge production is also part of that human rights advocacy um, in, 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 in the current iteration and in, in the current way that I'm engaged in it right now. So Nora Arakat, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Joe. That was our conversation with Nora Arakat, a human rights attorney and co-founding editor of Jadalia. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar and Rachel Bills edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often simply called flyover country. And of course, the Houndstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies, and oh, what a year it's been for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.